Welcome to a new conversation with Hani and Peretz, episode 10, titled Chabad Rabbis, hashtag Me Too. A month ago, Rabbi Remy Zippel, son of the Chabad rabbi in Salt Lake City, Utah, and today himself a young Chabad rabbi there, publicly shared how he was sexually abused from the age of 8 until 18. His story, published in Utah's Desert News, created tremendous waves, and I'm personally moved to speak with him. Our conversation explores deeper nuances of what he experienced and its aftermath. During the conversation, I refer a number of times to his published article, which was thorough and detailed, and is linked on our website, anewcombo.com, and Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash anewconvo. Avrami, it's a delight uh, to have you here sitting across from me. Uh, when your story came out about a month ago, about the experience that you had, and you'll share it with us to tell everybody uh, what we're talking about here. Um, I was struck by its candor, by its honesty, by its openness, uh, and how it spoke to the reality of what you experienced without any attempt to sugarcoat it, to justify it, to beautify it. You were just raw and open in your description. And that was deeply moving. And that's, I immediately reached out to you and emailed and asked you if you'd like to uh, have a podcast about it. Sure. And to be honest with you, I wasn't sure you'd respond positively, but you responded enthusiastically. And fortunately, we are meeting here and sitting across from each other and able to have this conversation. Um, so could you begin by just giving an overview of what you experienced and what brought you uh, to the point where you were about a month ago when this story broke. So that's a long story. Let's start from the beginning. Um, it's interesting. Every time I get asked since the story came out to talk about my childhood, I start by saying that I have incredibly fond memories of my childhood and everyone watching will raise their eyebrows, you know, with, with everything. And, and the answer is yes. You know, I have, I have very fond memories of my childhood. I was raised in Salt Lake City. My parents moved there to open Chabad in Salt Lake City, uh, shortly before my first birthday. I was raised there, the oldest of six. Um, our childhood, I think, was unique, non-typical, in the sense that we were homeschooled. Because we were at home a whole day, uh, my parents, from a very early age, had help at home. In July of 1998, my parents hired this babysitter who would be with our family for a number of years. Um, and a year later, just over a year later, she began sexually abusing me, which, uh, you know, all told went for a decade um, from age eight until age 18. Uh, as I said, notwithstanding that, I loved my childhood. I initially, I guess you'd say, discovered the fact that I had been sexually abused when I was 20. And then I used the word discovered pretty literally in the sense that before that, I had never entertained the possibility that what I had endured was called abuse. Um, it was just these things that I had done and that had been done to me and with me um, by this nanny. From age 20 until age 24, um, that little seed sat there. And at times it flared up, and at times it, it festered, and it nagged, and it, and it pushed its way to the fore. Um, in February 2016, um, I began getting some mental health treatment for you know, a variety of stuff that was going on in my life. 
And my therapist was the first person I ever spoke those scary words to. Um, and he was amazing about it. He is amazing about it. And he encouraged me and he got the help that I needed. And, and part of the discussion that we had over the years was, so now what? You know, now that I'm getting this help, what, what are we going to do with this? And we had entertained at great length the possibility of going to the police, going to law enforcement, which I was not going to do in no uncertain terms. It's not going to happen in this lifetime. And the main reason for that was because I was, in my very limited knowledge of how you know law enforcement works, I was going to go to the police, call the police, file a report, however it would happen, and they would slap my name on the front cover of the newspaper. And everyone would say, there goes Remy, the victim of sexual abuse. You know, there, there goes that one. And I wasn't going to do that. And so he urged me for months to find out what my options were. Have a conversation with somebody in law enforcement. Have a conversation with a prosecutor, with a detective. Just know, know, know what, what it entails. And so I did. Uh, it was a tremendous stroke of Hashgacha Pratis with Divine Providence, but I ended up having a conversation with a former prosecutor who's a member of my community now, and he said, no, you know, that, that, that's nonsense. The fact that if you think you're going to call the police, it's immediately a public matter. Why don't you give it a shot? So I did. The very next day, I called the non-emergency line at Salt Lake City Police Department, and I said that I wanted to report a crime that had happened to me uh, years and years and years ago. And, you know, the, the young lady who answered the phone told me a detective would call back shortly, and he asked me to come in for an interview, uh, which I did. I went down to the police department headquarters in downtown Salt Lake City, and he interviewed me. It was the most nerve-wracking moment of my life. Um, to that point. And I shared with him when I sat down that I was convinced that at some point during this interview, if not multiple times during this interview, he was going to stand up and walk to the other side of the table and arrest me for the things that I had done. You know, I think that the largest problem which I had to deal with and the largest misconception was, was the notion of consent, just from a legal perspective, you know, that I had not consented to these actions and that I had been abused. And I walked out of the police station, I called my wife and I said, you know, if I die today, I will die a happy man. February, I was going, I testified for the first time in open court. I, you know, which, which had been the greatest fear in all of this. And I, and I did that. And uh, I had decided with the advice of countless people that when I was going to do that, when I was going to testify, I wanted my story to be told on my terms. So, you know, if it's good enough for the whole world to know it in open court, we'll tell it out loud. And so that's what we did. Uh, the story came out in the Utah paper, and from there, you know, God bless social media, and especially within the Chabad world, it found its way to every corner of the globe, and it was very intentional. It was intentionally meant to be done in a way that, you know, I'm getting all of this off my chest. Everything. Warts and all. You know, this is what happened. For good or for bad, you know, think of me what you will, but this is how I'm going to heal. I'm going to tell it. I'm going to shout it from the rooftops. And it has been healing, thankfully. And the response has been remarkable. You went to see a therapist to help you deal with the trauma that you experienced. And for about two years, he helped you. And you were in a better state. Why was it necessary for your healing to go to the next step and go to the police? And why was it necessary for you to go to the next step and make it as public as you've made it? 
That's a great question. One that I actually think about a lot now, especially as, you know, now that the legal system is, 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 is a large part of all of this. And I think that, I think it comes with a few important, I think it touches on a few important points. I think the biggest point that it touches on, which is probably at the core of this entire topic, is that, and this is going to sound a little intense, and it is a little intense, but you don't, you don't recover from sexual abuse. My therapist has an office with a bunch of others, and in the hallway there's a sign. All the, king, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, which I, lo I love that it's in the hallway. You know, everywhere. In between all those offices, people are there for any number of issues. And I think that line is so, is so important because it's in, in, my, in terms of my struggle, it's at the core of it. You know, you will never get back to being that eight-year-old. You are going to live the best life that you have that you're going to continue to build on with everything going on. With that in mind, that healing process is continuous. And so I think for as a survivor of sexual abuse, every day you make decisions and you take steps in the process of healing. And sometimes, you know, it's two steps forward and one step back. And sometimes there's a few steps back and it's this continuous journey. And so for me, that journey has been predicated around the idea of I buried myself in layers and layers of, of guilt and shame for, for the large majority of my life. And I have found that the greatest antidote to that is, is, is stripping it away layer by layer by layer by layer. And so, you know, recently I shared with somebody the analogy, you know, it, it's almost like when I was eight years old, I took a part of myself and I, and I buried it at the bottom of a hole. And every day that went by, every time that I endeavored to keep this secret secret, I piled dirt on top of that. And now I want to, again, not reclaim that because I won't be back to the way I was when I was, you know, a, a perfect, precocious child. But I need to dig all those layers off. Everything that was piled on for almost 20 years needs to get, you know, removed. And so I found that going to the police was something healing for me. And, and as a result of that, being very public about it was something healing for me. Would you say that two things happened to you? One is the abuse that you experience from age 8 to 18. And independent of that is the shame and guilt that you built upon yourself continuing after the abuse happened. Absolutely. I think that's very well put. And I think that that realization is so crucial to recovery. And not just for myself. I think that's the point that a lot of people don't get in all of this. I think a lot of people see sexual abuse in a bubble. So a person gets sexually abused. How can we prevent that from happening? What steps can be taken to prevent the victim from ever having met the abuser? How can we minimize access for abusers to children? And these are all valid questions. But those aren't, are the only valid questions if we accept the premise that that's the only issue over here. And I think that's a false premise. The reality is that there's the abuse and then there's everything that happens as a result of it. And so I think that in terms of, you know, things that we Let can... Let me interrupt you there sure. for a second. When you say everything that happens in addition, could you be more sure. particular? Sure. So, 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 so in, you know, in, in particular, what you were saying is the, the daily experience that survivors go through when they don't want to talk about it of, of 
banishing that part of their life from themselves and, and, and living in the turmoil of shame and guilt, but, but not wanting to talk about it. There was a conversation that I had 48 hours after the article came out that really was really hard for me. So when I, all this was going on, there were two pediatric residents who were doing their residency at the University of Utah who were, who were very close with my family. So they both reached out. Both are, you know, practicing pediatricians now, you know, very, you know, very well-renowned doctors. And they both, you know, without knowing the other one had done so, some very, very, you know, heartfelt, passionate, really sad emails saying, you know, in addition to the fact that we feel bad, we feel guilty because we're pediatricians. We're trained to spot this. So I responded to both of them and I said to them, I said, you know, every single day when you saw me from age eight and onwards, I was putting on a show and I was committed with every fiber of my being as a young child to make sure you did not spot these patterns of behavior within me. So going back to my original point, that those efforts to, to conceal and to, and to you know, put on this show, put on this life that everything is hunky-dory and everything is going to be fine while you live with this you know, inner deep turmoil, that requires intense recovery. And in a certain sense, the recovery from that is, is as intense, if not more intense, than the recovery from the abuse itself. And that is the area where I think society really has the ability to do work is you know a, a very tangible work which is more in our control than preventing the abuse and that is you know giving survivors a place where they don't need to feel like that if you can sure quantify which would you say is more damaging the abuse or the efforts to conceal it That's a deep question. You're going to get more of these. Sure, no. So <laughs> let, let me start with this. That's that's not a, a an answer that I can, you know, speak on behalf of the, you know, community of survivors of sexual abuse, but on my personal terms, I think that when I think back to my life now, the struggles that I remember are the latter. The struggles that I remember are the constant struggles with the shame. I remember the incidents of the abuse very well. But specifically because you used the term quantify, it's hard to, to quantify what the moment of abuse does to you. Now, I'm sure that there are very smart people out there who have written numerous books about what that moment does to you. When I think about my struggles throughout life, I would say that, you know, in terms of if I had to 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 tally up the minutes, you know, where I felt the damage more, it's certainly in the second category because that continues, continued and continues um, far after the abuse ends. Again, the reaction to my story has been amazing and, and, I'm, and I'm thankful and I'm grateful for it. And, you know, that's all true. But th the stigma is still out there at least in our own minds. And so that is still the struggle. Let's speak to that. Sure. To the stigma. What is the stigma? The stigma of what? So I've had the good fortune of making a connection with, you know, a very prominent survivor of sexual abuse, and that is Elizabeth Smart. She has an amazing line, which I love. And, and it's, it's interesting because I went through this in the courtroom. And she says that you should never, ever ask a survivor of sexual abuse, sexual assault, of a survivor of any sort of, you know, 
difficult situation, a question that begins with the words, why didn't you? Because when you ask somebody a question with the words, why didn't you, you're insinuating that you should have. There are so many questions that people ask about my story. Why didn't you come forward earlier? Why didn't you tell your parents? Why didn't you tell your siblings? Why didn't you know it was wrong? Why, 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 why? And, and all of those questions can be switched around and instead they're accusations or they're perceived as accusations. You should have told your parents. You should have told your siblings. You should have said something to somebody. You should have known it was wrong. You shouldn't have been going into a bathroom with your babysitter by yourself. You know, I ask myself daily, why didn't I say anything? You know, well, what would have been if I would have gotten help at 14 or at 12 or at 11 or at 17, you know, or, or a day earlier or, or a month earlier? That self-doubt lingers. And that's what, what causes these feelings. And that as much as you'll speak about it in public and as much as you will rid yourself of the shame in a sense, but that part, the guilt part, the questions that you ask yourself, those don't go away. Correct. I want to zero in on, um, on what makes you, your case of uh, your experience unique that it began at the age of eight when you're just a child and it continued through the age of 18 where by some by standards of judaism you're an adult and when you are uh told and you're taught that every choice you make now counts and what that basically says is now you have the power to make choices and that's a major transition of thinking that you at, I assume crossed your mind and while on one hand you're saying consent uh, by Judaism standards by halacha there was consent uh, there was you know we were in yeshiva right and you learned uh, I don't remember what is it Ksuvis or Kedushin and you, Basada Leitzakar Naira mm -hmm. there's specific definitions of what is considered non-consent and by those definitions your case was consensual how do you reconcile the two? I taught a class recently. The Chabad houses around the world now are teaching this crime and consequence course. It's kind of ironic teaching it in the middle of all of this going on. So I came home for dinner. My wife says, so based on what you've taught, what would happen to your abuser? I said, well, based on what I've taught, everything I know, my, my limited knowledge of Jewish law, I have not found a verse in the Torah that says, thou shalt not molest children. So by that count, my abuser is free and clear. There's not one biblical commandment that she's violated. So in terms of, you know, how would this play out in a rabbinic court? That's, a, you know, that's that that's something which is, I guess, a little curious to me. It's something which just crossed my mind, but it was hard. It was infinitely more challenging after my bar mitzvah. In addition to the fact that I became a man and, you know, I had choices to answer to, I also left home just logistically speaking. 
And so leaving home meant that my abuser had a lot less access to me. I was coming home a few times a year for the game, for you know happy occasions, for whatever it was. And so there were times that I could earnestly convince myself that it was going to stop. Because it would, for two, three months at a time, while I was in yeshiva. Two, three months of respite from this were, were you know, untold luxuries to me. And it was those gaps that would really give me perspective, like, I'm not okay with this. You know, when it goes on repeatedly, you know, time after time, it's harder to think that way. But when you have some space, you think to yourself, I, I'm really, I'm not okay with this. And I'm going home, and I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen again, you know. With all the, you know, force that a 14-year-old can muster, it's not going to happen again. And then it happened again. So the, after, whenever it happened after I would go away from home and then come back for whatever reason it was, those were more difficult due to those, um, you know, coming together of all those different factors. To respond specifically to your question, you know, I've never thought, how would halacha view this case? If this was brought before a bet din, would the incidents, you know, before my 13th birthday and after my 13th birthday view, be, viewed be viewed differently in context of the consent? I will say that that reality was something that I, that I had thought of. And it did cross my mind, and it just added more fuel to the fire. Right. And that, that's, that's what I want to get to. I'm not really curious what halacha would sure. say, what halacha would not say, but the fuel that would add to the fire. Um, in other words, in addition to all, just the experience itself being overwhelming and be, being traumatic and, 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 and terrible, there's also the, the, this other element of how halacha looks at it. And in a certain sense, the fact that halacha doesn't see anything that happened as a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, like you said, there's no verse, thou shall not molest a, a child. Um, and and in addition, you're over by mitzvah, so you're consent. So, so th th this whole, it, you know, in, in the eyes of halacha, in the eyes of Judaism, which you're a rabbi, and you are not only a rabbi in a Jewish community, you, you market Judaism, you're in a certain sense a salesman of Judaism, but yet this Judaism would not recognize anything you're talking about right now, Anything you're describing as a victim or or, or being or a traumatic experience and, and 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 absolutely this is you're doing it. It's almost like you committed the crime, you pay the time. I'll 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 add to that, to how you know how much more intense it got as the years went along. When I was a child, I would say that I was pretty aware that what was going on was not okay. Like it was, it was strange, you know, it would be an understatement, but it was strange. The torment got worse over the years. And, and especially when, when I'd go to yeshiva and you, and you, and you delve into Hasidic texts, like, you know, every choice you make and, you know, you have to be abatened, you know, you have to, you have to, every thought, speech and action that you make, you know, God knows what happens. And I'm like, and, 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 and what's the example that the teachers in yeshiva choose to to drive this point home. So if you already had a slice of pizza <laughs> and you're tempted to have a second slice of pizza, you should know the decision you make in this moment to have a second slice of pizza on this rests 
you know, supernal worlds on the second slice of pizza. And I'm like, yeah, I got bigger problems than a second slice of pizza. Like, you know, when I think about, you know, my detrimental actions, I'm not thinking about a second slice of pizza. Like, you know, I've got, I've got far bigger problems. And, and t you're right. T t I thought about the fact that child abuse was not a, a, a biblically mandated crime. Um, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. And, and it's, it's interesting, you know, on a biblical level, if you pour through, you know, Rambam, Shulchan Aruch, you know, you pour through more contemporary halachic codifiers who wrote their books hundreds of years ago, not thousands of years ago. I, I haven't come across a section in, in the Code of Jewish Law that speaks about child molesting. It speaks about sexual abuse. Um, that, that, you know, I'm not going to disparage Judaism as a result of that. You know, I also... I haven't found any passages in the Code of Jewish Law that speak about not speeding, and I don't speed because, you know, I don't want to get a ticket. And so, you know, that, I think that's a pretty obvious fix. But, you know, as I, as I think back to it, all of these intricacies, the more knowledgeable I got and the more I went to Yeshiva and I studied and I, and I, and I got, you know, exposure to Torah, really made these things troubling. And, and I think to kind of, you know, take the conversation in a slightly different direction. I don't know how much I could have helped my eight-year-old self or my nine-year-old self or my 10-year-old self. But I sure am certain that I could have helped my 14-year-old self and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. And so, you know, when I think about what I want to affect in this world, that's really the target demographic that I hope to be able to do something for is young men, not, not, not little kids. I mean, sure, I was a little kid when I was 14, but young men, especially those within our system. And, and, and here, parents, I think it's very important for me to make a disclaimer. You know, I do not rue my yeshiva experience. And I do not feel like, you know, gosh, if they would have just taught me what was going on, you know, my life would have been, you know, I, I loved. As, as much as I look back fondly on my childhood, I look back at my you know, high school years and my yeshiva years with just, you know, the best memories. Likewise. Sure. I just wonder what can be done within the infrastructure that we have in place to provide that sort of education for young men like that. And so, you know, so, so there can be this sort of understanding that there are, you know, there are Bachram out there, there are Yeshiva students, that their problem is not the second slice of pizza. It's, you know, it's, it's far, it's far bigger issues. You said that what inspired, what motivated you to, to, to come, come out with this is things that you observed uh, from watching Law and Order, or from more importantly, though, is from seeing the testimony of Ali. Uh, does it make you think that your ability to confront this issue, your ability to 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 liberate yourself from what you've experienced so? devastatingly until this point came to you from a source that is outside of your tradition there ha there are and continue to be many many parts of faith of my judaism of my being a chassid of being a shliach that were large factors in getting to where I am today. For whatever reason, those are less newsworthy than Ali Reisman's testimony. So, you know, I will say, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not all that. Okay. First of all, 
Second of all, yes, that is interesting to me. But that only further inspires me to want to do this. Did Ali Reisman think when she stood up in a courtroom in Michigan that a Chabad rabbi in Salt Lake City, you know, was going to be watching this and, and, and make a life-altering event as a result of it? I doubt it. So when my article came out in the Deseret News in Salt Lake City about a Chabad rabbi, did I entertain the fact that, you know, a nice, you know, African kid living in Cameroon might come across a story and make a life-altering change as a result of it who's not Jewish and not Chabad? No, but, but that's the way our society is built. You give what you have so others can take from that. Which others? Any others. Because others have come before you and given. And that's, I think it's a Jewish theme. I think it's a global theme that that's the way the world works. One of the things that, uh, you know, your wife was taken aback when you came out to her with this and had this perception of, this doesn't happen to people like us. It happens, you know, to unfortunate people mm -hmm. who can't get their life together. Mm -hmm. We have our life together. We have a beautiful life. Has this experience give you, given you a different perspective on how to view other people, on the complexity of life, and how appearances of any sort are actually mirage to put it mildly are a mirage are superficial and are and and well i, I know the answer to your question it's obvious okay. no <laughs> <laughs> obviously yes sure. but but here is i want to take it a, a step further how are you applying that into your life in in both the people that you encounter you teach but more intimately how you're raising your kids because there's a difference between what you teach to the public and how you raise how we raise our kids, because you know we raise our kids, and I say we in our Chabad community raise our kids, but there are certain expectations, standards of behavior. There are certain appearances do play a, a role. We dress a particular way, we conduct ourselves a particular way, we eat certain foods, we see certain things, and appearances play a big role. And a lot is measured by appearances, and by all appearances. By all measures, your appearances were phenomenal. And therefore, your wife had this cognitive dissonance where, no, 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 this is not supposed to happen. So my question, my question is, how is this impacting how you relate to appearances in the way you are living your life and the way you're raising your family and the emphasis you place on appearances versus more substantive one thing that my entire experience continues to teach me is how important it is to stay away from labels. Now, I know it's a very generic term, right? You know, anyone can give a TED talk about staying away from labels. But I think specifically in our experience, being Chabad rabbis, whether it's from our own perspective or especially the perspective that we give our children to have, I think it, it's a lot more subtle. I, I think... In a certain sense, beyond what we tell our kids, it's, it's in our own minds. How often do we subconsciously pass judgment on somebody for a fleeting second in our heads? <sighs> Alcoholic, like, stop. 
we don't we'd never say that you know we're kind and, and benevolent and loving but it, it, it pops by for a second like failure really like you know of course you failed your test because you were out drinking last night with your boyfriend and, like, and, we, and we think that and as we should you know <laughs> we're entitled we're entitled to our thoughts there's one thing that all this has taught me is never never ever assume why something has happened and, and, and associate and connect the dots in your own head and, 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 and figure people's life out for them. Never. You can't. You, not just you can't. You do yourself such a disservice. When you slap that tag on somebody in nowhere else but your own mind, you have disserviced yourself infinitely more than you have disserviced the recipient of that label. Because that inherent bias, it, it leads you places and it leads you to, to assumptions and to making decisions. And it, and it influences the way you think and talk and act way more than you give it credit for. I want to do something I've never done before. Uh-oh. My family knows about this. My wife knows about it. My kids know about this. When I was 11 years old, I was sexually abused. Wow. Uh, in a very serious way. Um, and it's something that isn't visually in my mind ever since then. And a year or two later, the perpetrator approached me on Erevium Kippur in 770 and asked for Mechila. And I didn't want to, I just like, I said, yeah, just, I said, yeah, and just go away. And um, the reason I'm sharing this publicly now is because the power that it has to um, inspire others, to be able to overcome it uh, by being able to face it straight on is important. And you've inspired me to do that. I can't. I won't say that it scarred me or that I'm traumatized by it. It hasn't. Uh, or at least I believe it hasn't. Though I think if I sat with a therapist, they would show me very clearly at how the rate of one hundred and seventy-five dollars <laughs> an hour. Yeah, and insurance doesn't cover yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> how it has scarred me, and it ha and it is something that I had to deal with sure. uh, for my teenagers and for my entire life in some way or another, and and it did. Just I can't identify it, and I'm sharing it because. It's something that there shouldn't be shame associated with it. Uh, and shame and guilt is more devastating than the act itself because you carry it with you and it, 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 it drills you, it dominates you all the time. Conclude with this. When I was really torn about going forward, I called a Chabad rabbi to ask him his thoughts. He wasn't very for the idea. Not from a Shulchanot, you know, not from a, we can't, like, you know, I just, I don't know if it's what you want to do. So I asked him a question. I said, I, I'm of the opinion that in our yeshivas right now, I don't know the girls, just the boys, in our high schools, yeshivas, smicha programs, whatever, there are hundreds of survivors of sexual abuse. Do you agree? She says, I disagree. 
If you think there's hundreds, I think there's thousands. So I said, what are we going to do about them? She says, I don't know. It's a problem, but, you know, I've spoken my piece to you. I've given you my guidance. Have a great night. Recently, after the story came out, I met with a, with a, with a family member who's a teacher in yeshiva, and I asked him, I'm curious, what number, how many bachram in your yeshiva you think? One, in one way or another, could have been one time. She says, I think probably 30 to 40%. I said, you know, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. All that is is encouraging to me for, for doing this. It's, it's, it's incredibly depressing as a society. That's where we're at. But I'm, 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 it gives me hope that my story can be some sort of inspiration for good, that something can come out of it. You know, what I didn't want when all of this went down is like, you know, I told my story. We were a spectacle for a few minutes and nothing happened. And the world is just the way it was. The fact that there's people out there who need help, that, that, so it gets me out of bed in the morning. So, so what you what you're offering, what you want to see happening is that there are the victims that are getting helped, that are that are coming forward. that are coming forward, that are in a certain sense ridding themselves of the shame and yes. of the guilt. Yes, that's what you want them to do. Yes, that's one thing. Yes, what about? Creating an environment that, but you, the perpetrators you can't. You know they're sick people. Yes, we could we could we could scare them. Yeah, deterrence, sure. Right. Could we do something to to reduce the shame? Sure. What is that? If I would have asked you two years ago, two before two summers ago, are there actresses in Hollywood who are survivors of sexual assault? I don't think so. None that I, none that come to mind. Now is a laundry list. So what changed? Before you were a pariah for being a survivor of sexual assault. Now you're not a pariah anymore. Is that because sexual assault has gotten less bad? Has it gotten less disgusting in society? No. But look who else is. You have nothing to be ashamed of. If this one is and that one is and that one is, why should you feel guilty if that, if that happened to you? It doesn't make the actions of the man or the person who assaulted you any less reprehensible or any less criminal. But in terms of what you're feeling, your shame, you don't need to feel ashamed. Look what you stand beside. So the shame has minimized. Yeah. It happened to Avrami Tzipel. Yes. It happened to Peretz that's, that, that That's the conversation. That is the entire conversation. So the next time a Lubavitcher is sitting, you know, one night on his couch and, and it's feeling like it's the end of the world, and he says, I wish I could get help for it, but I would never talk about it. You know why? Because I, I, I don't know. There's no such thing as a shliach or, or, or as a chabadnik who's a survivor of sexual abuse. It's unheard of. The ones that are, we don't talk about. The ones that are, the ones that are survivors all have problems and we don't want to be like them. Not true. Does that make what happened to you any less bad? No. But but think about the fact that you're not alone. That's the goal. Avrami, thank you very much. This My was exceptional. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for delving in deeper to it with me. And um, continue your good work. This thank is you, this is phenomenal. And Aleva Hatzlech. Thank you for sharing your story. It's been an honor. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for listening. 
To receive notifications of our latest podcasts, please subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app like Apple Podcasts or Google Play. We welcome your feedback and thoughts on our website, anewconvo.com, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash anewconvo. To sponsor a podcast, please reach out to Peretz, P-E-R-E-T-Z, at anewconvo.com, A-N-E-W-C-O-N-V-O.com.